morning and happy Father's Day. Let's try it again one more time. Good morning. We now have some people in the building. You know, before you were just saying good morning to an empty room. Now I'm saying good morning to some real people. This is a lot more fun. And I trust that you're enjoying uh, our service this morning, either streamed or here in person. And we want to welcome you. And you know, today's a day that we think of fathers. You know, the first thought that comes to my mind is our Heavenly Father. Isn't he an amazing dad? How many think our Father in Heaven is amazing? Isn't he great? You can pour out your heart to him. You can ask him for things. And God hears our cry and ministers to the deepest needs in our lives. And that's so amazing. And I know that some of you had amazing fathers and some of you probably had some disappointments along the way. But, you know, human beings, right? We are a long ways from being like our Heavenly Father. But that's my prayer today, that as we listen to this message this morning, that we will move towards being more like our Heavenly Father. Doesn't that sound great? And I think that's true for all of us, not just for men. I think it true, applies equally for women. So I'm going to pray this morning. Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to gather once again. Even though there is uh, levels of restriction, Lord, there's still a tremendous level of freedom. I thank you for those that are joining us, not only in our community, but around the world, Father. Thank you for our missionaries that are listening in. Thank you for those that have discovered our site. Thank you for those in our community who are peeking in to see, you know, what is Living Stones all about. Father, I want to thank you for each and every one, and I pray that this message, Lord, would really give us insight and understanding into some of the great challenges that we're confronted with, not only as a father, but as people trying to live for you in a broken world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. Now, I don't know who the author is. It's unknown author, but they said this amazing statement. If it was going to be easy to raise kids, it would have never started with something called labor. Now, I know that relates primarily to women, but let's face it, it starts in a very painful way, and I think that, you know, being a parent or being a father is such a challenging thing. I think it's one of the most amazing elements in our lives. It helps us to mature and develop. Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Parenting, shares the story of an amazing couple, a very famous couple, John and Abigail Adams. You know, uh, he became the second president of the United States, John did. Abigail Adams lived during a time when allowing your children to travel overseas to accompany their father on an important diplomatic mission meant years and not just weeks would pass before you would see your child again. And before one such trip, their eldest child, John Quincy, who was nine years old at the time, he had a lot of second thoughts about being separated from his mother. There was a little bit of anxiety inside of him. And so in a very heart-rending farewell letter to her son, Abigail showed what she valued most. Instead of pulling him aside, she worked to strengthen her son's resolve. She admitted that yes, the separation would be hard and real dangers would lay ahead because let's face it, in the 18th century, sea travel was kind of an iffy business. But she also reminded her eldest son of his duty to take full advantage of the benefits he enjoyed as the son of a very influential man. And some of those benefits entail corresponding sacrifices and risks. But in the end, embracing those benefits with their risks would create a fuller life. She wrote this profound comment to her son. It is not in the still calm of life that great characters are formed. She says the habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. Wow, isn't that an amazing thought? And you know, we're kind of living in that time, aren't we? 
She goes on to say, great necessities call out great virtues. And when a mind is raised and animated by scenes that engage the heart, then those qualities which would otherwise lie dormant wake into life and form the character of a hero and a statesman. Well, what was she really saying to her son? She was saying, listen, some of the things that you and I see as challenges and difficulties are actuality opportunities to grow and allow things inside of us to really develop in our life. And that's quite a challenging statement. You know, a spiritually weak parent would have had a grueling time writing such a letter because no one wants to see their children hurt. But Abigail had once said of her husband, when he's wounded, I bleed. Most parents could say the same about their children. When mothers or fathers have not, have not at some point pleaded, Lord, let me feel the pain rather than that child. And I remember an incident in Rachel's life when she was just a child. I mean, she wasn't even able to communicate a baby. And she was just unconsolable. We ended up thinking there's something wrong. We ended up taking her emergency. And I said at that moment, watching her, this feeble little child, I said, I would quickly change places with her and suffer whatever she was enduring. And I think that's truly the heart of what a father or mother is like. But you see, Abigail had a bigger view in mind. Without great necessities, her son would never know great virtues. And she realized that a life full of challenge is really a soul forming life. Since she wanted a mature son, she told him to look his trial in the face. Her approach worked, and John Quincy grew up to be probably one of the most creative, competent, and effective secretaries of state the U.S. ever had, and eventually became the fourth president of the United States. But the same mother also knew the pain of disappointment. And you know, sometimes as parents, even if we're godly parents and good parents, sometimes our children don't turn out exactly the way we want. And let me just say this, that you know, God our Father in heaven understands that completely because I can remember reading in the first book of the Bible that he actually created two people, Adam and Eve, and put them in a perfect environment, he being the perfect parent, and they still messed up. So folks, let me tell you something. Even if you think you've done a fabulous job, don't walk around taking all the credit or all the blame for how your kids turn out. And I think we need to hear that once in a while. So having said that, I'm gonna raise the question, to what do you and I most aspire for our children? Comfort or character? And often those two come into conflict in our lives. Let me point out that as I talk about parenting today, what you really need to understand is that parenting is a very significant topic. So I didn't want to just focus on fathers today, though this really applies to fathers. I didn't want to just focus on people who parent people biologically. I want to point out to you that when you and I become the kind of person God's desiring for us to become, we become parents. Because everybody that comes into our sphere of influence, you and I are actually discipling, mentoring, nurturing, and that's the role of what parenting is all about. So in essence, I'm saying this applies to every one of our lives. So I hope you'll pay close attention. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the best books in the Bible to learn about how to handle challenging situations in life and also how to have healthy human relationships is the book that we've been actually looking at of late. It's the book of Proverbs. 
If you can read through the book of Proverbs and meditate and consider the principles that are laid out for you there, I believe it'll give you and I incredible insight and wisdom and understanding of how to live a more effective, influential, and a far more significant life. So let's listen to what Proverbs has to say about parenting or fathering in particular and how it influences and impacts the lives of our children. And so we're gonna examine this morning or today, a number of texts that on the surface may seem unrelated, but on closer examination, I believe that they're gonna share some elements or aspects that will help us become a more healthy mentor, father, or parent. So who we become literally affects what you and I do, and who we are and how we live impacts what we say. And so I wanna take a look, this is the text that I've chosen this morning to kind of lead us in a direction. It says in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse seven, we're gonna look at the first seven verses, but here's our text. The righteous lead blameless lives. Now, other translations in an earlier version of the NAV, it says the righteous man leads a blameless life and blessed are his children after him. But here in the NIV, I think it's actually appropriate to say that this applies to all of us. The righteous lead blameless lives Blessed are their children or those that they're influencing and mentoring after them. They're going to be in a blessed state. They're going to be actually be shown the right path to take. And isn't that all we can really do for people is show them the right path? You and I can't necessarily drag them on the right path. But if you and I are walking on the right path and people are, are looking and saying, hey, I want to find the right path, at least there's someone to show them the way. And I think that's what we're going to look at today here. So here we're going to see some areas and some keys that will bring blessing to those that we're nurturing. So what does it mean to live a blameless life? Obviously, it doesn't mean that we never sin. Okay, let's get that out of our mind. There's only one person who ever lived on earth that never sinned. His name is Jesus, the perfect human being. But we have to understand that living a blameless life is literally living a life where a person is, is somewhat innocent of the charges against them. A blameless life, I would say, is a life that's not lived as a sin-filled life. That doesn't mean we don't sin from time to time, but really it means that we're living a healthy life, uh, a good life, an honest life, a life of integrity, a life that will bring encouragement and blessing to others. And so our texts state that children who have this kind of a person, a person that has this kind of a person in their life, are they're actually blessed. Because that word blessed means happy. That means that they are discovering the right path to life. They're learning how to live and navigate life successfully. And let's face it, we're living in a day people are confused. We're living in a day people don't know the right from their left. Isn't that true? There's wandering all over the back 40, if I can say it that way. And you know, I believe God wants us to follow in his path. So I'm gonna look at three areas today that I think is gonna help us as we look at these Proverbs. Three areas that will help us live a righteous and a blameless life. Anybody up to figuring out, hey, I wanna walk this path. I wanna figure out how to live this way. And so let's take a look at these areas. And the first one is really a life of temperance. Now, how many go, yeah, we use that word every day, temperance, right? How many go, I don't even know what the word means. I mean, you won't even hear this word in our culture anymore. And yet, this was the best word to summarize, I believe, what it means to live a blameless life. This is one of the areas that we need to understand. And so what does it mean to be temperate? 
Actually, it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the virtues and the ethics that Proverbs talks about, other ancient peoples understood that. And one of the great virtues of the ancient world was this idea of temperance. And temperance really means simply this. It's a person who's living a moderate and restrained life. Isn't that interesting? This is a person who's not living an excessive life. This is not somebody who's over the top. This is not somebody who's out of control. Matter of fact, we could see it this way from the New Testament. It's someone who's exhibiting the power of God's spirit controlling their lives. It's a person that's evidencing the fruit, a result of the Holy Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23. It's really a life of love. It's a life that's not just self-focused. It's a life that moves beyond itself and is concerned about other people. It's an amazing life. And... It's a life that really talks about living a disciplined, self-restraint life. And let me tell you something, a lot of people in our world today are not living this kind of life. And so they're suffering as a result of that. And I think there's so many proverbs speaking to this issue of temperance from a restraint of words. As a matter of fact, the wisdom literature will teach you that it's a wise person who doesn't talk too much. How's that? That actually God gave us two ears and one mouth, and I think that's the kind of ratio he has in mind, that you're going to listen twice as much as you're going to talk. That we need to start learning to hear and not just to, you know, air our great opinion all the time. And I think it moves beyond just the restraint of words to the restraint of our emotions, you know, and it moves even into the moderation of how we eat and even the consumption of alcohol. That's all about temperance. As a matter of fact, if I was to ask some old-timers today, what was the temperance movement in the United States here and in Canada maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago, what would be the answer? It was really the restriction of the consumption of alcohol. And how many know today that we have gone the opposite way in our culture and that we have literally legitimatized and legalized and encouraged and fostered the consumption of alcohol and drugs in a big time way today. Isn't that true? Come on now, let's, let's be realistic. Let's take a look at some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 27. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. Isn't that interesting? And whoever has understanding is what? even-tempered, even-tempered. They're not wound all the time. They're not bouncing. And we have a culture that's bouncing right now. It's really an excessive culture. It says, whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. So now we're getting this contrast that Proverbs keeps bringing out over and over again. And here in chapter 20, we find another expression of that temperance. I'm gonna pick on this area a little bit because I am deeply troubled about where our culture's at with, you know, legalization of marijuana to, you know, basically making it accessible for people to stay in an intoxicated uh, state, to be altered in their personalities, and it's affecting how people respond to other people. Listen to what Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Uh, let's change it. Wisdom, righteousness, blamelessness, these are all uh, synonymous terms in the book of Proverbs. So what is he saying? If you want to live a blameless life, you cannot be somebody who's totally consuming this stuff all the time because it's going to alter your personality. Does anybody know that? Okay. 
You know, how many people started out drinking to have a good time and eventually found out that they started drinking to handle their problems? How many know that happens? How many know that this becomes a way of life and that a lot of people who are social drinkers during a time of crisis become problematic drinkers? Isn't it interesting in COVID-19, and I was just reading this in the paper, that the consumption of alcohol and marijuana went skyrocketing during COVID-19 because people were not able to cope with the crisis, and so they just basically tried to numb themselves. They were self-medicating. That's exactly what was happening. Old Testament scholar Robert Alden writes, here the verse mentions two kinds of alcohol, wine and beer, and the second is often translated strong drinking. These are beverages made from grapes and grain, either brewed Either brood can lead to intoxication, but that's not really the problem. It's what happens as a result of it, foolish behavior. Parents are models to their children. You know, we can tell kids to do something, but we're doing something else. What do you call that? Yeah, hypocrisy. And how many know that you and I have to maintain a standard? So listen, your children are gonna do more of what you're doing than what you're saying. They're gonna copy your behavior. And so they're seeing the model laid out before them. You know, you know, substance abuse finds its roots early in the human drama. As a matter of fact, Charles Bridges, in his commentary, and he wrote probably in the 1600s, 1700s, he said, the history of the world from the days of Noah, by the way, if you read the story of Noah, you know, here's a guy that God found favor with, but eventually he grows a vineyard and we find him drunk in the book of Genesis. And it says here that the love of drink and wine is the most insidious vice the wretched victims are convinced too late they have been mocked and grievously deceived. Not only does it overcome them before they're aware, but it promises pleasures which it never gives. Isn't that true of all idols? Idols promise but never deliver. It says, and yet so mighty is the spell that the besought and slave consents to be mocked again and again until at last it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. By the way, I'm, he's actually quoting from another section in Proverbs that says, the whole chapter is devoted to this and says that's what happens when you get, get into this realm of life. You're actually poisoning yourself. The raging power degrades below the level of the beast. The government of reason is surrendered to lust, appetite, or passions. How many recognize that people will do things when they're inebriated and intoxicated or strung out that they would never do when they're sober? That is the truth. You know, Brendan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, admits that 25 years ago, he had a drinking problem. Uh, Brendan Manning, if you don't know who he is, he was a Catholic priest, and he's, he admitted he became an alcoholic. And so he went to a treatment center. How many think that was probably a good decision on his part? And uh, early on in the treatment program, they had to sit in a circle and talk to a leader and tell the truth about themselves. And how many know one of the greatest problems when you're struggling with addictions is that you end up lying to yourself? You know, that's one of the reasons why 12-step programs, one of the first things you have to do is admit that you have a problem. And that's really hard to do because you're in denial. But he said they were going around the circle and they were telling the truth that they had a drinking problem until they came to this business guy by the name of Max. And when it came for him to reveal the extent of his drinking, he said, well, I never really drank that much. And they said, come on, Max, you're an alcoholic. Why would you be in a treatment center, right? You're not here because you were sipping, sipping Cokes. Now, you have to tell the truth to yourself. Admit it. Be honest with yourself, Max. Now, you have to understand that in this treatment center, they all have to sign an affidavit to say that they could check up on you if you were telling a lie. They were going to make them accountable. And so they had a kind of a phone in the middle, and they had it on speakerphone, and they said, we're going to phone the bar next to where you worked. And they phoned the bar next to where he worked, and the, and the guy comes on, the bartender comes on, 
And he said, hey, do you know Max so-and-so? And he goes, man, do I know Max. He stops every day after work, and he has a minimum of six martinis. Man, this guy drinks like a fish. He's the best comper we have, a prolific customer. The rest of the group looks at Max, and finally he says, yeah, okay, so what? I drank a lot, right? A little later in the group, they, they asked the question, have you ever hurt anybody when you were drinking? You know, people said, yeah, and they were sharing some incident. When they got to Max, he goes, no, I never hurt anybody. Not when I'm sober, not when I'm drunk. He says, I got four lovely kids and an amazing wife. I've, I'll never hurt my kids and wife. The leader says, you know, Max, we don't believe you. <laughs> I wonder why. Phoned up his wife. As soon as Max's wife started speaking, he started breathing quite heavily. He knows something's coming that he's been unwilling to face. The leader says, Mrs. So-and-so, Max, has he ever mistreated you or anyone in the family when he was drunk? And then she paused and she said, yes. It happened just last Christmas Eve. He took our nine-year-old daughter shopping on Christmas Eve and he bought her a new pair of shoes. You see, Max is a very generous guy, but on the way home, our little girl was sitting in the front seat enjoying her new shoes. Obviously, this is an old story. Max packs the bar and saw some of the cars of his buddies and he pulled in and it was a cold, wintry day with a high wind chill and he made sure all the roll windows were rolled up. He left the car running, the heater blowing, and he said to his nine-year-old daughter, I'll be right back. And he went into the bar and he started drinking and he didn't come out of the bar until midnight. And the tragedy was the vehicle that shut off the windows had all frosted over and they were locked tight so she couldn't get herself out. And when the authorities opened the car, and rushed her to the hospital. She was so badly frostbitten, her thumb and forefinger had to be amputated, and her ears were so damaged by the cold that she was going to be deaf for the rest of her life. And as the wife was describing this to the group, Max started sobbing uncontrollably and convulsing on the ground. He just could not bear telling himself the truth about what he had done. He couldn't face it. He was going to live the rest of his life in some fantasy world of denial in what he had done. You know, I, I get tired of people saying the only person I'm hurting is myself, and folks, that's one of the biggest lies I've ever heard. Because you see, you and I are interconnected with people. When we do the wrong things, it affects other people negatively. And we need to take responsibility. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. And I, I wanna just say this. I know I've, I, I've mentioned this now a couple of weeks, but I believe this is an important area in our lives. And nobody's talking about it. We're just moving along like in a numb state, like this is no big deal. But listen to what Paul says. Therefore, do not be foolish. Where does Paul get this language of foolish and wisdom? Book of Proverbs. Can you see it? He's full of the scriptures. But understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. You know, another translation says, which leads to excess, which is the very opposite of temperance. God is trying to teach us moderation, folks. Rather, he says, be filled with the Spirit. You know, people will do things when they're drunk that never do when they're sober. We've already alluded to that, but recently I read a, an article that 95% of violent college campus crimes are alcohol-related. 95%. But let me move on to the second point. That makes up a blameless life. Not only is it a life of temperance, I could have picked up on a lot of other areas, but I just focused in on this one. But let me go to the next one. It's a life of peace. How many know we're living in a, a moment of great unrest? People are angry today. There's strife, there's contention, there's injustice. How many know that's true? Can I tell you there's always been these things? There's always been this stuff. 
And now we're, we're, we're watching in the United States. And listen, this is not an argument that we should negate or you know, look at what's happening and go, what, what's wrong with these people? No, I think they're justifiable in being angry. I don't think that's the problem. My concern in, in this whole situation is how we respond to injustices. How do we personally respond to injustice? How do we respond to systemic injustices? Those are the important questions that we need to realize. And a godless, blameless parent does more to instruct those under them by how they live their lives and how they respond to the challenges that are being presented to them. You know, this is a great moment. Maybe you don't think that way, but the way you and I are handling this moment with COVID-19 or with the injustices around us is saying a lot about us because you know what happens? People either rise to the opportunity or they shrink back and they just live in denial like there's no problem. I believe we need to respond in a measured approach to life's injustices and evils. On the one side, we must not ignore what is happening. How many know that's true? You can't just be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand. There are some things you can't avoid nor should avoid. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 24, 11 says, rescue those being led away to death and hold back those staggering to slaughter. What is God saying? You and I are responsible for our brothers and our sisters around our world and whatever condition they are in. And let me just say a word of commendation to our church. You know, people are so generous in this congregation. I went up. You know, at the beginning of COVID-19, I made an appeal to raise money for India, then later for Africa. Do you know that our congregation rose up and began to help feed the needy people in other parts of the world? But it didn't stop there. After I said nothing, we sent monies. People continued to give. And so we have sent more monies to India, more monies to Africa, because the needs have continued on. And I want to thank you for that generosity. So I know there's some amazing people in our church family. That's awesome. But if you say here, we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceives it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay every, everyone according to what they have done? In other words, when you and I become aware of a situation where we can do something about it, we ought to do something about it. Isn't that true? You know, but what should we do about it? Sometimes we're a little bit out of a loss of what we can do to help situations, Okay. Well, I think it starts by how we treat people. So the first thing we can't be is indifferent and we can't be caught being apathetic or neglectful. However, the approach we take must, must, must honor God. You know, don't you think it's interesting that a guy like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, you know where he learned his response to the injustices that were happening in India in the 1940s and 30s, you know where he learned to respond in a right way? This is going to shock you. He took the example of Jesus. And he began to develop this thing called nonviolent resistance. Now, it, where did he get this from? From Jesus. Or think of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, who also decided to do something about the racial discrimination, which, by the way, in his day was far more intense than it is even today, even though there's still some today. I, I recognize that. But he went about it in a non-violent approach, which is contrasting what we're seeing today, right? As a matter of fact, we need to see Jesus as an excellent model how you and I should overcome the injustices and evil in our world. So how did Jesus go about doing it? Well, first of all, I don't think we should ever get to the point of absolute despair and take things 
entirely into her own hands. I think God is on the throne and he's the one who's gonna address those who oppress others. We need to understand that the first step is to cry out to God. How many believe that? And can I just say this in all of our lives? When we have significant challenges and issues in our life, the first thing we should do is drop to our knees. And what I mean by that is the first thing we should do is cry out to God. And listen, if you wanna have an example of someone who really talks to God, read the Psalms, because David literally poured out his emotional anger and hurt and brokenness and frustration and grief and despair to Almighty God. Folks, if we don't do that, then we're gonna lash out to people. Do you realize that? We need to come to God first. And I believe if we come to God first, God will begin to give us understanding and strategies how you and I need to be involved in becoming part of the solution and not just perpetuating the problem. And that's how you live a blameless life. Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. You know, a lot of times, on a, strictly on a personal level, how should I handle injustices? Well, rather than strike back and do evil, here's a, here's a strategy, you wanna write it down? Here's how a blameless person's gonna handle it. This is gonna shock you. Do good. Bless those that despitefully use you. Do good to them, pray for them. As a matter of fact, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on your head. You think that's a negative thing? No, it's a positive thing. Then he says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because if you respond back with evil, you have been overcome. But if you and I say, you know what, I'm gonna have a forgiving spirit, and yeah, I'm not saying what they're doing is right, you know, I could, I could cite so many examples. Immediately comes to mind is the story of the Truth and Reconciliation Council in South Africa where one of the police officers brutally and savagely killed this woman's husband in front of her eyes and lit him on fire and destroyed him. Uh, that's evil. How many say that's a terrible injustice and a terrible evil? But you know what happened later on when Nelson Mandela, a black man, became the president he could have turned around and done the same evil back to the people who had suppressed, you know, the blacks in South Africa. How many say that's true? But you know what he decided to do? He says, we're not gonna operate that way. We're gonna overcome this evil with good. We're gonna change the systemic problem in a different way. And he created what he called the Truth and Reconciliation Council where people who had rendered evil had to face their victims. How many think that's kind of a, you know, kind of a deja vu moment? So here's the police officer now on, in, in, on, in the courtroom, and he's listening to the mother, who they also killed her son, and the husband who they had killed. And you know what she said to this police officer? She says, you've robbed me of the ability to be a mother to my son, but I'll tell you what I want. This is all I expect from you. I wanna be a mother to you. I'm gonna forgive you, and I want you to come every day, and I'm gonna be your mom. How many know the poor guy just fell apart? He just started sobbing and weeping. Because you see, when you and I do what's good, it always impacts and empowers and transforms the people that are affected by these things. 
It's interesting here that we read, but we have to be very careful how we respond to those in authority. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 20, verse 2 says, the king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He, he who angers him forfeits his life. In other words, here's a person that has the power to destroy others. It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we gotta take a step backwards and say, hey, you know what, we need to pay attention. We, we need to try to avoid strife. We need to learn how to handle these things in a different way. You know, when you read about the king here, what's the right application? This is a person in authority. As a matter of fact, I think we have to be careful how we handle people in authority. And I'll tell you why. This is gonna be shocking to you, but listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13 and verse one. He says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. Now, I'm gonna make a shocking statement to you. If we were to rebel against all authority, we would be living in anarchy. And let me tell you something, anarchy is far worse than what we have today, by a long shot. Does anybody understand that? Anarchy is not the answer, folks. But, with, but you know, we do need to do things when there's injustices. I'm not negating that, you've already heard me say that. And I don't think it's wrong to have anger and have strong emotions about injustice. I think we should have that. What I'm arguing for is that we need to learn how to control our emotions and have the right response. And we need to have a biblical response. And we need to show good and grace rather than render evil for evil. That's what I'm arguing for. You know, if you wanna be a, 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 a mentor, you wanna be an amazing parent, you wanna be someone that's gonna nurture and help other people, listen to what Paul's words are to his son in the faith, Timothy, who's now a Christian leader. This is what he says to him. 2 Timothy 2, 24, he says, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must not be a fighter. It says, rather, instead, he must be kind to everyone. How many know sometimes it's hard to be kind to everyone? Okay? There's gonna be people pushing your little button, right? And you say, well, I can't help myself. You know what I always tell people? Undo the button. <laughs> you know, disconnect the button. Address it in your soul, right? <laughs> Able to teach and not resentful. You know, when people don't treat you well, doesn't that build resentment inside of you? Anybody? Come on, let's be honest. They can build resentment. He says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, you know? I remember one time I was, I'm, I'm a youth pastor, and this guy's upset. He's upset with something I did, and he's literally leaning over his desk, screaming at me. Now, how many know if I would have started arguing back, that would have been a bad scenario? So you know what I did? I spoke very gently. Because I, I, first of all, I listened. How many, remember, two years? I listened to his pain, and I finally said very gently, I can appreciate why you're upset. But you know why he was really upset? He wasn't so much upset with me, he was upset with himself. And I recognized that. Okay, because I brought something to his attention that he didn't want to hear. Now, those who oppose him, he must yield gently and, and to instruct him in the hope that God will grant them repentance or a change of mind, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Do you know, folks, we're fight, not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting against spiritualities and powers. So you can sit there and say the person is the problem. I'm going, no, there's a power behind that person. That's the real problem. Let me move on to the third area that make up for a blameless life. First one's temperance, second one's peace. The last one's a diligent life. 
Godly parents take their responsibility seriously when they don't accept responsibility for things like providing for their family. You know, listen to what it says in Proverbs 20, verse 4. Look, Mom, I told you I was going to go through these verses. It says, a sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. What's a sluggard? How do we define this word? It's a nasty word, isn't it? It just means a lazy person who's not willing to do what he's supposed to do when he's supposed to do it. And he ends up with nothing, and then he walks around expecting other people to help him out. I'm gonna just say a statement here. You may not like this, but I'm gonna say this, because our our understanding and our culture has gotten skewed. If a person doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That's what Paul says in Thessalonians. Now, I'm gonna argue it this way. If a person is unable to work, we should help him. But if a person is able to work and has the opportunity to work and refuses to work, that's the problem. Do you see the distinct difference? How many can see there's a balance in this? You just can't walk around going, well, they don't, they're lazy. Well, they may not be, have the opportunity. Give them an opportunity to work. Now, if they have the opportunity and are unwilling to work, that's a different story. You know, I don't know if you know this, but laziness is a sin. Anybody know that? I'm gonna tell you that. Laziness brings on deep sleep and the shiftless man goes hungry. Wow. This does not mean that all poor people are lazy. Please get that out of your head. That's not true. I think there are people systemically poor because, you know what, they didn't have the same opportunities as other people. And if God has given you more, you need to help those that have less. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. And by the way, where we live, we're the top 1% of the world probably in the world's good. So, you know, we should be helping people from other parts of the world. We should be helping others. You know, how many people realize that sometimes people develop a systemic mentality? What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, let's say you grow up and your family's on welfare. Sometimes people just learn to live the welfare system. They've just never known that they could actually get a job or, you know, work hard at getting beyond where they're at. And, you know, I remember years ago, I was ministering in a small city in Ontario, And the pastor and I were friends, and he asked me to come, and I was preaching in his church, and he was giving me a tour of his community and talking about the challenges of ministering there. And then we were driving through one section of the community, and he said, this is a very dangerous part of our city. You don't want to be here at nighttime. It's dangerous. And he said, most of the people in this section of town, they've all grown up on welfare, and their children have basically imitated their lifestyle. And then he shared this amazing personal insight. I thought it was so beautiful. He said, you know, my dad was just like these people. He was lazy, didn't want to work, went from job to job, not because he couldn't, you know, because he was bored or he had better opportunities. He did that because he didn't want to work, and he kept getting laid off. I mean, he got rid of them because he wasn't doing his job. But he said my mother was the exact opposite. She was so hardworking. She was so amazing. She held her family together. And I I thought to myself, it's obvious to me who he's taking after, and it wasn't his dad. Because this guy's probably the most diligent person I've ever met. Hard worker. As a matter of fact, it says in Proverbs 18.9, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. That's a powerful statement. And you go, what does it mean, pastor? It just means this, that sometimes when we're really slack and we don't do what we're supposed to do, we're actually not just destroying the, 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 the product that we're trying to put together. We're actually destroying human relationships. And many of the marriage problems that sometimes I discovered over the years was because one of the spouses was just shirking their responsibility and created all kinds of tension in that relationship. But you know, there's another aspect to diligence, but it's not necessarily to do with physical work. 
Because sometimes people overwork. Sometimes you can be a workaholic and you can ne and neglect a more important part of your life, and that's your relationships. And I've, I'm not just advocating to be a diligent, industrious worker. I'm also ar arguing that we need to be as diligent in the building up of our relationships with people around us. That is so critical. You know, it says here in verse five of chapter 20, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. You know what this means? It means that there are people that have such a concern for other people that when they see them and they can see the, their countenance, they can look it in their eyes, they can sense that there's an emotional upheaval, they take the time to spend the time to ask the questions and listen and understand where this person is coming from. That's relationship building. And can you imagine a father or a mother, someone that sees their child and begins to understand the nature of their child and begins to draw out of them what's inside of their hearts? How powerful is that? And that's part of living a blameless life, that we have the patience and the understanding to listen and to, and to help those that are struggling on the inside. You know, people today need to know someone cares for them. People need to know that, that someone cares what's happening in their life. You know, the other day, someone was in a crisis, you know, and uh, I just picked up the phone and phoned them and chatted with them just for a few minutes and prayed with them. You know, I got a text this morning already, and they said, Pastor, thank you so much for taking the time to just being there for me at that moment and just praying with me. That meant so much. Listen, it's important that we touch base with people. You know, Derek Kidner writes, the contrast here is between a profession and faithfulness, both of which contain the idea of steadfastness. The best way, I'm gonna close with this idea, the best way to love your children, the best way to be a blameless parent, the best way to mentor people correctly, well, let me go back to the family for a minute. And I, I heard this when I was a young husband and, you know, a, a, a young father. And it was simply this, Learn to love your spouse. And when you love your spouse, you will be best loving your children. And I thought a lot about that. It's a very powerful statement. If you put your spouse ahead of your kids, you're actually really loving your kids. And a lot of people get it backwards. I see a lot of people making the mistake of loving their kids more than their spouse and it destroys their marriage. And actually the kids suffer as a result. What we should be doing is really working on our marriage. And if we do that, we create this healthy, uh, loving, peace-filled, beautiful home where the kids grow up in a state of stability and security. And that's so powerful in their lives. And let me close with a story from uh, Gary Thomas's book, Not Sacred Parenting, but he wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. And he said this, if we are serious about pursuing spiritual growth through marriage, we must convince ourselves to refrain from asking the spiritually dangerous question, which is, did I marry the right person? Oh, listen, isn't that an interesting question? Wrong question. Here's the better alternative. A far better alternative is to question one's, than questioning one's choice is to learn how to live with one's choice. This is the right person. You see, a character in one of Ann Tyler's novel, A Patchwork Planet, comes to realize this too late. The book is, a, is told by a 32-year-old narrator who's gone through a divorce and now works at an occupation that has him relating almost exclusively to elderly people. As he observes their long-standing marriages, he comes to a profound understanding. He said, I was beginning to suspect that it made no difference whether they married the right person. 
Finally, you're just with who you're with. You've signed on with her or him and you've put in a half a century with them and you've grown to know them as well as you know yourself or even better and they become the right person or the only person might be more to the point. He said, I wish someone had told me that earlier. I'd have hung on. I swear I would. I would have never driven Natalie to leave me. Wow, that's powerful. Listen to what the proverb says. If you're a child and you have a blameless parent, you have someone that's walking the right path, someone who is endeavoring to please God, you are blessed. You are blessed. You know, and here's the characteristics. All you got to do is take a look. Is this person temperate, peace-loving, and diligent? That makes up a blameless life. They understand and they fulfill their obligations to others. These blameless people are laying an incredible foundation not only for their children to build on, but for the culture in which they live. And here's my prayer, that you and I will become those kind of people for our city, that you and I will become like spiritual fathers and mothers in our community, that you and I will live a temperate life, that you and I will live this diligent life, that you and I will live a life of peace, that you and I will overcome the evil that is being rendered around us because we will have a measured response of grace and goodness. Let's stand. How many here can say this morning, I'm so thankful I had a parent like this? Any of you could say that my parents were like this? Yeah, most of us can't say that. Isn't that sad? Isn't that true? But how many here say, Pastor, I want to be a person like this? Raise your hand. See, my hand's up. You know, I want to put God first. I want to do what's right in His eyes. I want to respond to crisis that comes into my life and into your life in the right way. We want to walk blamelessly. Isn't that interesting? God says to Abraham, he says, walk before me blamelessly. I'm quoting Genesis 17. Walk before me blamelessly. God says in the New Testament, Jesus said, be perfect or blameless even as your heavenly Father is blameless do the right thing. And we're going to pray that God's going to help us. How many say, you know what, Pastor? I need to be more temperate. I, I, hear, I hear what you say. I need to be more restrained. You know, maybe you say, you know what? I need to learn how to overcome evil by doing good. I need to learn that. That's not natural to me. I get upset. I get frustrated. I want to retaliate. All right. Some of you say, you know what, I realize I need to be more diligent. Not just in my work, maybe some of you that's where it needs to go, but also in my relationship building. I need to be more diligent. I want to live a blameless life. Okay, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the people that are listening right now. I thank you for those that may not know you. Lord, this does not come naturally to us. This is something that comes through the result of the work of your spirit in our lives. And we have to invite you. We have to invite you to come into our lives and ask for your divine assistance in order for help us to be on this path of blamelessness, of living this amazing life because in the end, 
It enriches not only ourselves, but it enriches all the people around us. Lord, help us to become a blameless person. And may we see the fruit of it even in our own lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.